Hello and welcome to episode three of the Spoilt Ballots podcast. And you should know what it's all about by now. It's a podcast for political nomads who are stuck adrift in the middle ground, left to the left by Labour, left to the right by the Conservatives, and looking for a place to call home. And uh, if you've joined us and you're of that ilk, hopefully our mutterings and musings in the next 30 minutes or so will help you feel like there is a place, there is a home. Uh, and we'll talk about all the issues that um, are leaving us feeling a little bit unloved. Uh, Martin Curtis is with me again. Morning, Martin. Good morning. Um, now, obviously, th- since we talked last week, uh, events have been somewhat overshadowed by the latest act of terrorism on our streets, carried out by a gentleman who perhaps shouldn't have been on our streets, a convicted terrorist out on licence. And that has brought law and order straight and centre to the front of the debate in this election, when up until now it probably wasn't even mentioned, I don't think. I can't think of a a single politician who's mentioned law and order up to now. Well, apart from 20,000 new police officers, I think that's as far as we've gone. mm, 20,000 old police officers, which doesn't even get us back to where we were before Theresa May decided to cut 20,000 Absolutely, but I I think the fact that this has happened during the election campaign... Um, actually has has meant we haven't had a proper debate about it. You know, the fact that the debate has been stimulated by a a terrorist act uh, makes that very, very difficult to have the debate we need to have. And we have to say right now, you know, condolences uh, to the families of those two poor people who would try to help rehabilitate prisoners who and yeah. were sadly killed uh, and uh, our, our hats off to the people who tackled that man so bravely on that bridge oh, yeah. uh, and to the police who went in there as well and, and dealt with the situation. Uh, ab- absolutely and, and um, you know it's you know two people um, you know who've sadly lost their lives who've got um, you know, Cambridge connections as well, Cambridgeshire connections, um, which is where we're know, from, of course. Ab- absolutely, and and so that you know that that to me heightens the sadness because of my local connections and our you know our past. Mm. I, th- I think it is a real shame, and actually, two people that by all accounts were, you know, incredibly well att- well intentioned and well meaning in the in their approach to life. Um, I, that is absolutely a shame, um, and it, the reaction I don't think. The immediate reaction, I don't think, helped. Uh, I don't think it helped anybody, to be honest. Uh, but what do you mean did... by? What do you mean by that? Well, it, it was all about rhetoric, and and it turned into a very quick blame game. Uh, and the reality is, um, you know, there are questions to be asked. Why have we got seventy-four people who have been released under the under the same circumstances? You know, and convicted and... terrorists on our streets, wandering about, who knows where. Who thought that was a good idea? No, and and not knowing how, for us as members of the public, not knowing how MI5 are tracking them, what what police contact they've got, you know, all of that adds to doubt. And and we, we I think most people were thinking we were getting on top of this, with um, you know, the fact that, that you know the threat level had been reduced marginally, you know, in the last six in the last few months actually. Mm. Um, so you see, it does make you wonder, um, and it is a concern. Yeah, and, and I, I I also. It, it wondered at the time, you know, those, those those two poor people who sadly lost their lives, you know, incredibly well-meaning, doing their best, you know, to rehabilitate uh, prisoners. And I'm, I'm sure, I'm positive that, you know, in, in a lot of instances, you can rehabilitate oh. people. Mm. I'm not sure you can rehabilitate convicted terrorists who have um, this warped intention, this warped version of Islam in their brains, who have been brainwashed. How can you 
rehabilitate somebody like that? And if, if you are convicted of terrorism, it's effectively treason. Shouldn't you go to jail for life and that's it? So, if, if you, um, one of the things you don't know about my past, I, I was a board member of Cambridge Probation Service mm. uh, when it existed. Uh, and if you look at the, the remit of probation, the number one priority is to, re- is, is to protect the public. And you have to look at whether the approach that was being taken actually succeeded. Well, it quite clearly didn't in this no, case. No. And then you have to sit and look at, okay, those 74 people, what are they doing to, you know, what are they, you know, what is being done to make sure that we're protecting the public in those circumstances? And this man conned the people oh, absolutely. who were in charge of it. And, and, you How know, many more are capable of conning yeah, people and the, in authority? The, the second priority of the probation service was to reduce reoffending. Now, there's a whole new debate about what you do with that. And, you know, I would say the probation service is probably one of the most underfunded it was before 2010 one of the most underfunded public services so do labor have a point here that that you cut police officers you cut funding to probation and you know corners are cut or or is it is it is it the overriding ethos that a man like that i'm not even going to use his name because i I don't think we should glorify his name but the terrorist who was shot dead by the police on london bridge a, a man like that you know, sh- should he be should he be out on license? Should his you know sentence have been changed by the judges? I mean, sh- or should a convicted terrorist go to jail for life? My gut instinct is that a convicted terrorist should go to jail for life. And and you know, I, my, my military background, I had sort of connections with what was going on in Northern Ireland. And you know, I, I just don't see how you can justify releasing somebody who is willing to take somebody's life. For, 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 for a cause and, and take an innocent person's life as well. You know, there's all sorts of arguments about whether life sh- should mean life for murder, but surely committing an act of terrorism is, a, is an act of treason. Uh, to me, it is life sentence. This happened on the Conservative watch, though. I, I, absolutely, and, and if, you, if you look at, you know, the spat that there was and, and the really unhelpful spat that there was after the event with the parties blaming each other well, for I think, what happened. Well, I, I think I saw a tweet from Diane Abbott saying, oh, you know, typical Tories, you know, using somebody's, you know, death to score political points. And she didn't understand the irony of her tweet, I don't think. No, absolutely. And, and that, um, both parties were at it. I do think the Conservatives were worse, sadly. But, mm. um, but both parties were at it. And it's also true that there was a lot of twisting of facts as well, which meant I think people were left even more confused. But isn't that, isn't that, symptomatic of this this whole election period you know and I was, I was having this conversation this morning and somebody said you know are any politicians in this debate capable of saying something that's not a lie and I replied no vote for the person you mistrust the least and that's how I'm going to vote because I don't trust any of them I, I, I have a huge amount of sympathy with that I, and you know the reason the, one of the main reasons that I will not vote Conservative is that I just do not trust Boris Johnson and I, there's but do you trust him less or more than Jeremy Corbyn? The one thing I'd say is, if you look at the difference between the two manifestos, and I won't vote for Corbyn either. Gaffor, <laughs> <laughs> Gaffor. Yeah, but but if you look at the difference between the two manifestos, at least Corbyn has tried to set out some sort of vision. Whether you agree with it or not, mm. he has tried to do that. It's a £1.23 trillion pound vision, isn't it? Uh, you know, and counting, uh, allegedly. And, you know, today we're told... Uh, even, it, 
Even on top of that, yeah. your rail fares are going down by a third from January. Lovely. Oh, no, I can I can talk about that forever. I I actually have some sympathy with that policy. I have to say, but I I also I, I just feel that um, you know the Conservative manifesto was a was, was a manifesto of no risk. It was about the Conservatives not losing mis- losing votes by making the mistake they made last time over social care. Is that why Boris is is is, is playing the dodging Andrew New game as well? So he doesn't take any risk. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And uh, the fact that he's not being interviewed by uh, by Andrew Neil should set alarm bells ringing with so many people that actually I'm not sure this guy he's either not on top of things or he's not to be trusted. But but you know equally I ask you again is he to be trusted more or less than Jeremy Corbyn because one of them you know probably. 90% is going to be Prime Minister. I think there's the difference. One is, it's not that Jeremy Corbyn... I think there are times when he's when, when you, you can't trust him. The issue is that Corbyn is sold on this philosophy that he has, and it's the philosophy that he supports that, in my view, is fundamentally flawed. There are all sorts of other issues around anti-Semitism and, and all those things, but it, when it comes down to it, the philosophy that he supports is fundamentally flawed and is proven to be flawed time and time again in history. Now, the danger is we're only seeing part of that in this manifesto. And that's the bit I don't trust. But aren't we only seeing part of the Conservative manifesto as well? Because there's such broad brushstrokes in the Conservative manifesto. They could mean anything when you get in power. You could turn you know, those little headlines into virtually anything. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. There's a there's a uh, Beth Rigby's done a, a thing that I've, I read this morning where she talks about some of the things that could come out of the Conservative manifesto because there is so little detail. So, as an example, the potential for reform of the Supreme Court as a way of punishing them for the fact that they um, uh, they punished Boris. Mm. Uh, you know, as an example, because it hints at it without actually saying that that's what they're going to do. Vengeance and, is mine. Absolutely, and and and. Uh, that that does worry me, and the lack of detail. Uh, it's also a missed opportunity because the Conservative Party keep talking about one nationism, and yet there's no detail about how they intend to deliver it. And if I go back now to rail fares, mm. this is why I like rail fares, uh, the rail fare cuts, and there's some conflicts in this, but reducing rail fares opens up whole new uh, routes of commuting for people that couldn't otherwise afford to commute Hmm. and therefore opens up job opportunities to people. At the same time, it increases and widens the pool that recruiters are able to recruit from as well. That's great though, but you've got to have the infrastructure in place first, haven't you? You've got to have the platforms, the the trains, you've got to have, you know, the money to do it. And, you know, I'll I'll take you back, way back again to the 70s. We've been here before, you know, eventually you, you, you tax people to death, you spend, 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 you run out of money, and you've got to get it from somewhere else because you can't get it in tax. No, absolutely. And and the real real the, the real conflict with that policy is that at the same time as Jeremy Corbyn is doing that, and it is a policy that would drive people onto the railways when they're already creaking. And at the same time, he is supporting the Southwestern Railway strike, which is all about the rail operators being able to save time at stations so they can stop and turn and, and get trains to stop and go quicker, which would increase capacity on the lines. 27-day mm, strike. 
Yeah, a 27-day strike. Over Christmas. And it's all about who presses a button to say a train can go. It's not about whether guards exist or no. And we were, we've been here yep. many, many times before on the railways when it was nationalised. It was an awful service. People forget. It was mm. terrible. It was filthy. It was late. It was, you know, yep. it was overstaffed. It mm. was ridiculous. And, and that's where we're going, isn't it? Uh, not to this utopian vision of a fantastic 24... 24- Second century railway service, that won't happen. You'll just end up with five people pushing the button on the door, won't you? Well, th- there is the danger of that. Um, you know, socialist states do create a lot of unnecessary employment, and uh, um, that you know we we could be headed that way. And I I would like to think so. I would like to think not. Sorry, let's get that right. Uh, I, I do, and and that is the big problem. People forget that unless you've got competition in a system like that, you don't drive innovation through. Uh, and and you know yes it means you're giving money to shareholders but at the same time you're probably saving more than you're giving because of the innovation and the fact that you're willing to look and drive that's why state-owned industries don't work mm. and, and we talked about we briefly touched on the nhs last week and that's become a big political football this week uh, and the 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 document that jeremy was waving about that was heavily redacted uh, which he claimed to show that the NHS was for sale to America, which didn't show that at all. It was absolute rubbish. I mean, the headlines they were spouting, it did not say that in there. It, it absolutely didn't. Uh, I, I, but, and I'll say this, I, I really don't get this argument. I really don't understand it. Explain. If you took t- take the principle of free at the point of delivery, at the moment, if we tender contracts out of any sort from the NHS... We have to, over a certain value, European companies have to be able to tender for them. Mm. Okay, that's where we are within the EU. So it's already an open market. Absolutely. You can also bet your bottom dollar that we are buying equipment from uh, from China for the NHS and buying goods from China for the NHS. I, I don't see why America can't be thrown into that equation. Uh, and just as an example, um, GP surgeries, all private industries or private businesses they're not uh, and so if if an american company wants to buy into a gp operator so into a gp surgery operate it better than it is in the uk at the moment mm. and it stays free at the point of delivery and that fundamental principle why not why should because you? that's the that's the worry, isn't it? That it won't remain free forever. That the Americans will somehow come in, they'll do a deal. The Conservatives can't be trusted on the NHS, and eventually, you know, those that can pay will, and that's a slippery slope. Then to everybody pays. Yeah. The most ex- the most effective argument the Conservatives have made about the NHS, which is very valid, which is that the Conservatives have been in power more during the period that the NHS has been in existence than any other party, and it is still fundamentally free at the point of delivery. And I suppose the, the other interesting fact is that I think there's a, there's a figure that the NHS is about 7% privatised at the moment, yep. and the joke is that was all done by Blair and Brown. Or the vast majority of it. The vast majority of it was, you know, as an example, we talked about it last week. And these are facts. These, are, by the way, kids, these are facts, not fake news. No. This, this is this is truth. That the fundamental decision to take uh, to take Hingenbrook into, pri- into private uh, in, to, to be privately run, which is one that we've both been involved in mm. in different ways. Um, you know, that was fundamentally taken by a Labour minister, although confirmed by the Conservatives when they got into power. So it does show, yeah, absolutely. Um, the reality is, 
I think I've said this all three of our podcasts. The debate around the NHS is the wrong debate. And, you know, it's all about who can throw the biggest bucket of money at it. Eventually, people are going to get tired of that. Hmm. They will get tired of the fact that we have got this inefficient management structure, uh, something that's undynamic, that's really, really siloed. And they're going to start screaming for change. And it'll be too late then. So what we're saying is, I mean, the the NHS needs a bit of... uh, privatisation and inverted commas when it comes to management it needs to have management a, a proper business ethos at the top to yep. be run properly absolutely and right. then let doctors and nurses yep. take care of medical decisions yep. and, and decide how care is yep. administered so that, that principle that there was at Hinchinbrook where the management was all private sector all mm. part of circle health but the nurses and doctors remained part of the NHS and remained NHS employees. But waving bits of paper with redactions on them and and and, yeah. and promising buckets of money, it doesn't fix the problem, does it? It just you know, no. scores cheap points. No, but it's also true the Conservatives are not fixing the problem either, and they're not coming out with anything solid. It's all about um, who can throw the most money at the NHS. And, and it's just the wrong debate. The wrong debate is how should the NHS be best structured based on that principle of free at the point of delivery, including how do you tax it? Mm. Let, let's, let's make, we've talked about the Tories, we've talked mm. about Labour, and the reason we've not talked about the Liberal Democrats, because if you do a Google search on Lib Dems uh, for the last week, there's virtually nothing happening apart from um, they've got a few problems with leaflets, emails, personal data issues and fake newspapers, and, oh yeah, they've rode back on Article 50 and mm. getting rid of that. But apart from that, they, they're just not... They're going backwards at a rate of knots, aren't they, under Joe Swinson? It's a huge missed opportunity for the Lib Dems. Uh, There is a real... It was was Joe Swinson's election to make this. The fact that the Labour Party... um, There were so many people uncomfortable with the Labour Party that would have voted Lib Dem that are now voting Labour. Uh, it's such a huge missed opportunity. Well, are they on 12% at the moment? They were on 22 at the start yeah. of this election or something? 12, 30, yeah, most polls are 12, 13% at the moment. Uh, and that is the Lab- that is the Labour Party squeezing the Lib Dem vote. And I, I fear it's going to get squeezed even more between now and, uh, and December the 12th. They've even lost Hugh Grant. Um, just a party standing in front of a boy. Asking him to love them. And he says, no, I'm voting Dominic Grief. I mean, how embarrassing is that? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but to be fair, he has been campaigning. I think Hugh Grant has been campaigning in marginal seats, trying to encourage tactical yeah. voting. And so, I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure multimillionaire Hugh with his £18 million Chelsea flat will really appeal to those core Labour voters. Yeah, absolutely sure right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, the irony of that, you know, he's probably not affected by by, by Labour's taxation plans because he's probably already got his money hived away somewhere. Yeah, yeah. and uh, in a house somewhere else, and he, he's probably got dual nationality. Oh, so he yeah. might not have, I don't know. I don't yeah. want to cast aspersions, he's a rich man. Uh-huh. He could sue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the Brexit party, again, uh, where, where I live in and around Peterborough, the Lib Dems virtually non-existent in that city. Uh, the Brexit Party, very noisy through local man Mike Green. But nationally, I haven't... I mean, it's like it's like a, you could hear a mouse drop. Nigel's been hiding. Very, very quiet. The poll rating's on the floor at like 4%. I think the Greens are higher than them now. Well, every now and again, Nigel Farage sticks his head up. People shoot at him and he sticks his head back down again, is the way I see it. But they've been absolutely nowhere. And um, tactically... Um, if if you're a real Brexit party um, enthusiast, and I'm not, um, 
they, they've fundamentally got this wrong. And it doesn't surprise me because Nigel got it wrong under UKIP as well. They have their moment in the sun and then, then they fade and that was always going to happen. It's almost like he's gone on holiday for the last week with Jacob Rees-Mogg and Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, absolutely. Yeah they're, yeah, they're probably all hiding away in Jacob Rees-Mogg's mansion somewhere. Yeah, probably. Um, as we speak, the NATO summit is on. Uh, all the world's leaders are in London um, with some uh, some very uncomfortable photographs in Downing Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump particularly, I thought, looked really, really ill at ease with uh, with his wife in Downing Street, you know, pretending to like the Christmas carols that were being sung, and a, a young gentleman behind him talking into a microphone looked about 12, who was organising it all. Uh, but they're all here, you know, spouting and, 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 and posturing. Who, who will win out of that when it comes to, you know, statesmanship? Will Boris do well out of that, or will he do negative numbers being associated with Donald? The best that Boris can do out of that is to come out neutral. Uh, and, and that would become, that. that's all about how does that summit end up in terms of uh, Trump's uh, next news conference. But uh, Who knows? Not even his own team know that. Well, no, absolutely. There's a lot of nervousness. I think Macron probably comes out of it with a bit of credit, to be fair, yeah. so far. Um, but then he was also caught on camera... Um, laughing about Trump as well, uh, which uh, is probably not very dignified. Yeah, they were all having a a large guffaw, weren't they, at um, various Trump actions. But, I mean, Trump himself, uh, going back to the NHS, was questioned on that very thing and said, well, you know, it's it's not on the table. But, you know, six months earlier, he he absolutely was on the table at a press conference. The man's either got a really bad memory... Or he, he just doesn't understand what he's saying. It, it, it's quite clear that the, N- that, that the NHS will be... Well, I, whether it will be on the table or not is one thing. The US would very, very much like it to be on the table. And aspects of it have got to be. Hmm. And that's the bit I don't get. I, it really is confusing. That I, It just does not make sense to me that if we can buy things cheaper from, the, from America... Hmm. And, and save our NHS money, we should do it. And, you know, looking at some of the the, the facts, I think I saw Andrew Neil post something the other day, that, that, that most generic drugs could actually be cheaper if bought from America. Not some of the specific drugs, yep. but most generic drugs could be. And you would have a wider marketplace. Absolutely. And the evidence is that the NHS, uh, uh, one of the things it does get right is as soon as drugs go out of patent they will buy uh, uh, generic drugs uh, because they're cheaper. And and so, you know, there's an opportunity for us there. You know, it doesn't mean to say, you, you know, it's also new drugs, the opportunity to buy new drugs from, from the States at a decent price, um, if, if the price is right, means that actually, you know, we're, we're going to be helping patients as well. Well, there'll be more money. Yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and less waste. But also, we'll be treating diseases that we couldn't otherwise treat before. Because at the moment, the biggest barrier for introducing new drugs into the NHS, and I don't mean this in the wrong way, NICE exists for good reason as an organisation, but it is because NICE say it's not affordable. Hmm. And, and you know, if we get a decent deal from the states around new drugs and supply of new drugs... Why wouldn't you? Why isn't that cutting through then? Is it, is it is it general distrust in politicians, distrust in the Conservative Party? I mean, you mentioned earlier they, you know, they've been in power longest while the NHS has been in existence. So well, there's no there's no quality debate about it, is there? It, it, it's all it, it's all about the NHS. Uh, the NHS is for sale to America. 
uh, and you know, then then you go no facts. Well, yeah, you go into panto season, don't you? Oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it isn't. But there's no detailed quality debate about, you know, what benefits could come from it. I have to say, it, it depresses me. I, I think the quality of the political debate in this country is the worst I've ever known. I think the quality of politicians on offer is lamentable. I honestly, do I think if this is the best we've got to offer the people of this country? Um, we need to think again. I'll I, I go back to what I said at the start. I'll be voting for the person I mistrust the least. And I, I won't be alone. I I will almost certainly be spoiling my ballot for very similar reasons. Hence uh, the name of the podcast. Yeah, I, I just can't. Um, I, I can't. We've got two people, one of whom fundamentally I disagree with and I do think will do harm to the country, although some of the manifesto I support, which is the Labour Party, mm. But but if I can't support the Labour Party, why should I then go for somebody that uh, I just fundamentally don't trust, and and because he's marginally better, you know, if if you're not offering me, you know, what I want, um, and and what I need, and that's why we need to go back to PR, and I'll go back to that <laughs> time and again because you will increase the number of political parties in the UK and people like me won't be cast in the middle. How do you get better people though? That's the that's the question, isn't it? That's the, the $64,000 question. How do we get back to people who are um, in it for the right reasons maybe or, yeah. or, or not, you know, getting carried away with PR and spin and everything else and and just standing up for what they believe in? And, and some would argue that that's all Jeremy Corbyn does, but the spin's still there. Oh, fundamentally still there and you know the Labour Party changed the tune you know to suit to suit the occasion in the same way the other parties do basically it is about widening participation in politics and the way you do that is by changing the political system so people trust it so people have a vote that works for them and by that I mean it counts for something yeah, yeah. because there's too many places where it doesn't and and but also where you know there've enough political parties for somebody to sit and look and say where is it I belong, and politics has to go back to um, rather than the you know the spats that we have now to philosophical arguments about you know what's right and wrong, um, you know a, a philosophical level rather than just you know about throwing money at things. Don't we need to get the truth? Go back to the truth because I think in all of this, I think the most depressing thing for me is. As a journalist, you know, and I've, I've interviewed many, many uh, politicians in my time. Um, the truth has gone. It's, it's been lost completely. And, and, and people are believing lies on all sides of the argument. How do we get back to the truth and, and finding out exactly what the truth is? I would like to see some of the fact-checking stuff come more to the fore. Mm. Uh, the Sky have done a good job of that, actually, this election, where they've allowed the fact-checking, um, you know, they brought this fact, the fact, the independent fact-checking uh, organisation into their uh, into their presentations and yeah. talking about it. The BBC have done some, but it's hard to see, you know, as an example, the BBC did a fact-check of Mars' interview with Boris Johnson on Sunday, um, and it's hard to see how, you know, that, that can be seen to be impartial. And the problem is... For a lot of people in this election, the BBC have not been impartial and they've no. come in for a lot of criticism and they've had some missteps. And, you know, confidence in the BBC is waning because of that. 
Well, it's, it's interesting, though, because, you know, they, they've been criticised for editing videos of Boris, as an example, mm. in early in the campaign. Which, having worked mm. in the BBC Newsroom in mm. Television Centre, mm. I can't understand how that happened. No, well... Because any editor I ever worked for would... Well, you would have known not to have done it. Yeah. One, because you're changing... You know the way you're changing the whole narrative of that clip because of, of editing that. So you would never have done that because no. you'd have had the training. And on top of that, your editor wouldn't have let it go out. But I, I think that the criticism that's there in the BBC at the moment is that there are quite a few political appointments hmm. that have come into the upper echelons of the BBC who have not been broadcast journalists, uh, and they've been, you know, parachuted in by the government, whether it's a Labour government or a, or a hmm. Tory government. And that, for me, is the most disappointing thing. I think John Sweeney, uh, yeah. the Panorama reporter, is actually um, complaining to Ofcom about mm. interference in his reports. Yeah, but but then you look at you look at the Marr interview, um, and and it's really because I I watched that again last night, uh, and you know that Marr interview has led to loads and loads of complaints from conservatives about the behaviour of Andrew Marr. And I've watched it, and I think Andrew Marr was a little bit out of order in that in in that debate. But I think there's reason underneath it, which is that Boris was awful. Mm. And and it's not that Ma stopped Boris being good. It's that Boris was, uh, rather than asking questions in detail, he was using every question as an opportunity to have a political rant about something. And, and Ma was trying to stop him and keep him focused. And I don't think either of them come out with any dignity. But it's the fact that you've got those two conflicts with people saying that the early reporting was pro-Johnson and that the Marr interview was, was anti-Johnson. Mm. Um, it just shows that, you know, maybe it's not as bad as people portray. But, mm. I, you know, locally, I, I heard a, a debate on BBC Radio Cambridgeshire locally. And, mm. and, you know, some of the questions were so dumbed down. You know, I mean, yeah. they were virtually asking them what their favourite colour was. You know, and that for me is is part of the problem too. You've you've got to hold these people to account mm. if you want to be a respected news organisation. You've got to ask those difficult questions and keep asking them till you get the answers. Uh, absolutely right, and that's why Boris should be in front of Andrew Neil because he needs to show that he has answers, and and Andrew Neil is the only person that will bring that out. But the BBC backed down, didn't they? They well, led him on Andrew Marr. They shouldn't have done that, should they? I don't think. In, in my opinion, I would have well, said if you went to Andrew Neil, you're not getting another interview. Well, and, and the reality is that the Andrew Marr interview, uh, part of what Andrew Marr was trying to do, it seems, is to be Andrew uh, to be Andrew Neil, uh, and he's not. Mm. Uh, and I think that was part of it, because he certainly wasn't anywhere near um, as aggressive in the way he was um, with uh, Shami Chakrabarti just before. So I, 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 I broadly agree with that. I, I just think... But when it comes down to it, the Conservatives should just man up and say, we're putting Boris in front of Andrew Neil. And if they can't train him to do a decent job on Andrew Neil, then he shouldn't be doing the job. Yeah, I, I think he's... I mean, I do a lot of training, as you know, yeah. and I, I would struggle, I think, because he, he just either... Either his head won't take it, or he's, he's, he's uber-intelligent, he's got the attention span of a gnat. Um, I, I, I don't know whether he's trainable. Um, I don't know. But the the reality of that is, um, you, you know, you can sit there and you can predict pretty much the lines that Andrew Neil is going to take. Mm. He's going to be incredibly well rehearsed. He's going to have the detail of the numbers underneath uh, underneath everything he does. And so what you do is drill that into him. And it's not that Andrew Neil will, you know, Andrew Neil will probably come out on top. He has on every other interview he's done. That's great. But at least you can make sure that Boris doesn't have a car crash and you rescue it and you come out with a bit of dignity. 
not doing it is just utterly undignified and 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 actually is disrespectful of the electorate. The trouble is it goes back to what you were saying about Boris earlier, and do, do any of us really know what's in his head and what he truly believes in? Because I'm not sure he even knows himself. And that's part of the problem when you're coaching people for interviews, and you say, right, these are your key messages, this is what you've got to say, mate. Yeah. And, and then he changes his tack and changes his tune and completely throws it out the window because he's mm. had a different idea today. No, absolutely, you know. and, and I think there's truth in that, and, and it, there is truth in the fact that I don't think he knows what he stands for. He no. stands for whatever keeps him as Prime Minister. You know, that that's the reality. What a sad state of affairs. It, it, abso- absolutely right, and, and the difference, I know Theresa May was unpopular, the difference between him and Theresa May in that respect is stark, because Theresa May was very, very principled about what she believed in, and I, I, I'd still feel that if she hadn't been caught in, in the middle of this Brexit mess, she would have been a, a, a decent Prime Minister. So we, we've got politicians that nobody trusts. We've got, you know, lies been peddled as truths. We've got a media who are struggling to appear impartial and, and filter the lies from the truth. It's a bloody mess, isn't it? Yep, and there's two th- we need the, the fundamental thing is that our political structure at the moment is broken and, and we should start post-election from that basis. How do we fix it? And, and the, the points are, you know, w- you know, what are the reasons for not doing PR anymore is the first one. The second one is true devolution so that we can get power down to a local level. Even Who's going to drive regional... these things, though? Because the Tories and Labour are not going to vote, for, you know, Turkey's not voting for Christmas, are they? They're not going mm. to, you know, you know, see themselves out of a job. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the time, some of it is civil servants as well, where civil servants don't want to let power go. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I saw that, you know, in some of my dealings with government. Um, and you, you need to turn around, and, and there are some excellent civil servants, by the way, as well. But there is this thing about empire building within the civil service, as an example, which I saw when I worked for the MOD years ago. So it's sorting the civil servant out, civil service out as well. Mm. But, but de- devolving down to a local level doesn't mean less civil servants necessarily. It just means decisions taken closer to the ground. You know, investment in, in, in road infrastructure, as an example. You know, investment in the skills agenda so that, you, you, you know, you can drive, you know, the, the, the semi-skilled employment, which has all but disappeared in this country. Um, all those things can be done at a local level and it's all about giving local people tax raising powers and giving the power and authority to do something the conservatives have pledged to to have a devolution white paper so what um <laughs> love how dismissive you are of your, well, your party <laughs> well it, it, but, but until we know what they intend yeah. just just saying in your manifesto we'll have a devolution white paper just means nothing we're going to paint buses blue are yeah. you yeah. why well we'll let you know sometime well, quite and, and the labor party have, uh, have talked about regionalization as well um and uh, you know it goes back to it's john prescott's idea and i i really feel bad about saying he got it right but but he what he didn't do was sell it enough and have enough vision for it, mm. which is why he lost the referendum on it. I I wonder with nine days to go whether we're making things any clearer for anybody listening to this podcast, or we're just giving them a bit of solace that they're not on their own. They're, they're, they're as frustrated as we are with you know the political system and the politicians that we have, and and maybe that's enough. Maybe we're giving people a bit of solace rather than sorting the problems out. 
Yeah, I, I, well, I hope so. And I hope it's given people food for thought about, you know, the, the fact is there are ways we can make politics better and, uh, you know, different and better rather than just different. And that's one of my fears about the reasons people are supporting the Labour Party is um, we need radical change. Jeremy Corbyn is radical change, therefore I must support Jeremy. But actually, it's got to be the right radical change, and that's the bit that the Labour Party don't hit for me. Not one that bankrupts the country. Um, none of us want that. Um, that is uh, the Spoilt Ballots podcast, episode three. We'll be back next week with the final one before the election. On my birthday, we find out the answer on the 13th. No cards, please. I'm not uh, edging for presents. But thank you for listening. See you next week. See ya. See ya.